The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Paul Craddock, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. How are you today, sir? How are things in the UK? Things of you. Well, it's an election day today, local elections. Um, so I think I think things are okay, if a little tense in places. I'm sure. I'm sure. We just had that a couple of days ago ourselves. <laughs> is the season? It is. Uh, so uh, you are a uh, first-time guest to the podcast. So uh, if you could please tell us a little bit uh, about who you are. I'm Paul Craddock. I am a medical historian, and my first book, Spare Parts, The Story of Medicine Through the History of Transplant Surgery, is about to be released in the US, in North America. Best title for a book I think I've had. <laughs> Spare Parts. <laughs> it wasn't always called Spare Parts, actually. It, was, it used to be called its real title, and I think you might be the first person to... I've actually told this too. <laughs> um, the, the original title was Dragon in a Suitcase. Dragon in a Suitcase? Yeah, and the fact you said it like that means I have to explain what that is. Um, and basically, it's an yeah. 18th century story about, about transplant surgery, because transplant surgery goes way, way back. Right. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, it was quite, um, quite a turning point of the 18th century. And I found a story about, basically the story is about a dragon um, that is brought into Britain and reanimated. And the story includes uh, some forgotten 18th century science about how transplant surgery works. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact I have to explain that now means it was a very good thing my editor said you don't want to call your book dragon in a suitcase because you'll be explaining that for the rest of your life <laughs> um i think this is perhaps a case where the the editor had a very good point <laughs> oh she's um, had many good points let me tell you this is your first book it is yes very good uh how long have you been studying uh the history of medicine Ooh, well the history of well i started studying the history of medicine because of transplant surgery and that was in 2009 i started studying that so quite a while actually i came across an image one day on the internet as you do i was looking for a subject for my phd um because i knew i wanted to study the history of medicine but i didn't know quite what um, i was interested in the body and um, the history of the body, but you know, that's really quite general. Um, but I was surfing the web as they used to say, and I came across an image of a woman called Jennifer Sutton. And she was staring at her own heart. And this was an image that was taken at uh, a museum, which was new at the time. Um, called the Wellcome Collection. The Wellcome Trust has been going for a long time, but the Wellcome Collection was a new museum, public-facing mm. um, institution and library. And it was their first temporary exhibition on the heart. And 
one of their main exhibits was a human heart that had been excised as part of a, a transplant procedure. And they invited uh, the woman who'd received the transplant to come and look at it. And there was a photographer there to, to view it. So if you if you Google anybody listening to this now, you can Google Jennifer Sutton and Hart and it'll come right up. Um, and it's it's a spine chilling image. What a surreal. It's absolutely. But looking at that image, it's well, a few things immediately occurred to me. One of them was, I suppose, a general sort of um, it sounds quite saccharine to say it, but a general kind of thankfulness for our health service. You know, we have a national health service and without that, uh, Jennifer wouldn't have been able to to be looking at her own heart. So there's that kind of uh, thankfulness there, I suppose you could say. But also, it was incredibly, as you can imagine, and hopefully if you searched it, intimate. Because you have this woman looking at at her own heart and there's nothing more intimate you can't get much more intimate than that right um and you also have the added knowledge that inside of this woman is someone else's heart and someone had to die for that picture to be even possible keep her alive to keep her alive in order to make that picture well not in order to make that picture possible but you know what i mean yeah um and it's this general i suppose the image being so such an unlikely one, it raises all sorts of questions about um, the body. What does it mean to have a body? Who owns the body? Um, what is it to have an identity? And how has that? How does that change when you have someone else's parts inside of you? Um, so it, it so transplant surgery sort of quite quickly emerged for me as a topic of human interest. So I wasn't, I'm not a surgeon at all. Mm. Um, I'm, I've never had a transplant. I donate blood, um, but that's about it as far as my personal involvement with the field of transplantation goes. But it's, it's a subject that encourages you and invites you to think about um, the big questions in life. And that is why I decided to dedicate the next 11, 12 years to the subject. I'm very excited to have this conversation today because you're, I mean, we're going to get into, I'm sure, you know, topics, you already mentioned identity and then morality and philosophy mm -hmm. and probably religion, uh, all society, all kinds of things. This is, this is going to be a good conversation. So I'm looking forward to it. In your research, when, when did we first start doing this type of thing? It's not clear, and it's not clear because it's so ancient. It's In fact, transplant surgery is mentioned in the form of a skin graft in one of the earliest surgical texts that exist, and that's a Sushruta Samhita, um, an ancient Ayurvedic Indian uh, surgical text. And well, it, it was compiled between, well, I don't know exactly, and no one really does, but between the 6th century and the 2nd century BC. Uh, but even then, everything in that document uh, was considered traditional. Okay, so we're talking several thousands of years. We're talking at least at least a few thousand years. Um, and, it, and it actually, it, it 
there's a lot of evidence that it comes from horticulture. Do you know how how um, farmers will graft trees together, apple trees, pear trees, to increase their yields and mm -hmm. and and whatnot? Well, the skin graft technique is that technique transposed from plants to humans. Well, somebody had the the curiosity to at least say, well, if this works for plants, what if we try hmm. people? Absolutely. And, and, and there are so many, I mean, if you read the book, you'll find out just how, not well, you won't find out just how many, but I indicate quite a few ways in which um, humans and trees had a kind of a, I, I want to say a kinship. I mean, I don't want it to sound too flaky, but, you know, people had this idea that humans and trees were related quite closely. Pliny the Elder, for instance, um, said that trees had the equivalent of bones, the equivalent of blood, sap, you know, there are, there are um, correspondences there. Uh, but also culturally, people have treated trees quite similarly to humans. In India, for instance, um, certain uh, part, in certain parts of India, people would marry trees to one another to sanctify their crops. So there are, you know, there are, there are, there are correspondences culturally and physiologically and transplant surgery it seems emerged as one of those correspondences. Now you mentioned the the earliest form of this being skin graft. Um, mm. I guess you know maybe we should define when, when when we talk about doing a transplant what what qualifies. Um, I've asked that I've asked that question. Um, I've been asked that question quite a bit actually, and it it for me it is when some some organism or some part of an organism is growing in one place and then is uprooted from there and moved to another place so that could be the same the same but on the same body it could be uh, from one body to another but the character of it is, is that it's growing excuse me it's growing in one place and it is uprooted and planted again so i i would assume that this was probably relatively rare and didn't have a great success rate it's hard to say in ancient india um because we don't really have any records of operations taking place of transplant operations taking place at that time we have the you know the the process described but when it is described it's described as one of the most prestigious processes a surgeon can perform and if you were going to treat a king you needed to be able to graft skin so it had a kind of a a cachet i suppose you could say um the members of the lower castes probably weren't having this type of thing done um well i suppose you'd have to practice on someone <laughs> that's just my supposition <laughs> that's oftentimes how uh how uh the research part goes well do you know in the in the 19th century the British, in inverted commas, discovered uh, this procedure, um, and it was being performed by a man of the brickmaker caste. So it, it had a particular, you know, a particular kind of a person would have performed it as well. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how common it, it, it was, but it must have it must have been fairly common. Okay, all right. So 
when do we start seeing this uh having better documentation of it well it starts to sort of emerge in the records in about the 15th century but really the first sort of the start of the story the start of a story i tell um is 1549 and that's uh, in italy and uh, so a few things have changed in that time as you can, as you can probably imagine but something fundamental has changed about the operation as well it's the procedure is pretty much the same um but it's it's not performed on kings anymore it's not part of any any legitimate um official rather system of medicine it's performed exclusively by peasant families in italy and these peasant families they have their they have this technique as a secret so they can perform it on people who come to them but they don't want other people to know about it but in 1549 um a very interesting surgeon called leonardo fioravanti decided he would steal the technique so he rocked up um that that term rocked up didn't didn't slip off my tongue very easily he <laughs> he went to uh the door of one of these secretive surgical families the vianio family and he um he asked him if he could watch them operate because he had um, a relative, he said, who'd been fighting in Lombardy and he'd lost his nose. Mm -hmm. So um, he, he wants to get a replacement, but not quite sure how to go about it. Don't quite trust this, this operation that he's heard so much about. So can you watch it? And they said yes. And you know, he completely swallowed his story. Um, and so he started watching this operation, which I'll not describe because it's quite gruesome and bloody but he started to watch the operation and he put his hands up to his eyes as if he couldn't stand the sight of all this blood and it was making him feel queasy um but what he was really doing was looking through the gaps in his splayed fingers and he took note of everything they were doing and he wrote it down in his book and that's how we get the first sort of um well, it wasn't really codified, I don't suppose, at that point, but it was written up for the first time in uh, modern or early modern uh, literature. Fioravanti was a complete liar, though. So <laughs> he, he went, to, I think it was, I can't remember exactly now, but it was, I think it was Florence. Uh, it's in the book, but it, it was, he went to visit Florence and he went to the Hospital of the Incurables. And he reported on his visit there saying, I cured everybody. Just sort of <laughs> brazened it all out, you know. <laughs> right, right. A lot of exaggeration there. Exactly. And he, actually, he he tried out that, that um, procedure on his friend a year later. This is, again, this is a report that he made in, 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 in one of his books. He, he, he was wandering around the coast with his Spanish friend and the Spanish and the Ottomans were at war at the time mm -hmm. and a fight was picked and um, a nose was lopped off and Fioravanti decided um, well, I can I can reattach that nose for you uh, so it, it it had sort of fallen off into the dirt and he picked it up and he looked at it and it was full of sand and he urinated on it 
and decided then to put it onto his friend's face, tied a bandage around it, uh, like you would with a tree, you know, binding it tightly. And when he removed the bandage a few weeks later, nose was attached. Um, so I don't quite believe that story. The mechanism does work of skin grafting. It's the mechanism people still use. Mm -hmm. I don't quite believe that he reattached um, a nose after weeing on it <laughs> um, because he had form as a liar. So I don't know. you can make your own mind up, though, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so when did they start going inside the body? Inside the body? Oh, God. It's actually hard to know what inside means. Does blood transfusion count? Actually, that is the most internal transplant in this kind, in this long history of transplant surgery, because blood transfusion um, wasn't meant to transfuse blood itself. You know, if you lost a lot of blood now, you'd get a blood or a plasma transfusion and you would sort of replenish what you'd lost. Mm -hmm. Well, there was no concept uh, of, of a blood that needed to be replenished because in those days, if you um, went to the doctor to be treated for most ailments, as you will know, you were bled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so blood was meant to come oh, out, yeah. not, go, not, not go in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something happened in, well, 1624 is when William Harvey published in Latin his ideas on the circulation of the blood. It's something he'd he'd um, lectured about before this point, but 1624 is when we sort of have that date, isn't it? Uh, of the discovery of blood transfusion, uh, blood um, circulation. And quite soon after that discovery, well, I should say first actually that, that the discovery of the circulation of blood um, is, the dis is the, I suppose, introduction of a new way of looking at bodies as not quite as machines but as being composed of mechanical components so you still have a the idea of a soul which inhabits this um body but um um you know you have the first sort of indications that the body is not not all that the ancients said it was it was something quite different um so it's there's a, there's a system and so and, and as soon as you have people identifying this system you have people thinking this mechanical system you have people thinking oh can we attach two systems together what happens if we do that uh, and and how do you in can you introduce things into that system so infusion experiments happened um at the royal society in Britain, um, in London, and Oxford. And they used hollowed out quills, hollowed out reeds, you know, any kind of conduit that they could get their hands on or, or contrive um, to try to introduce substances into the bloodstream to see what would happen. Mainly it was opium um and alcohol and you'd you'd try to get a dog drunk or high and they get drunk and high very quickly if you inject <laughs> those things into Beautiful. their bloodstream yeah. 
<laughs> as you can imagine. And one of these scientists, Richard Lower, he decided to inject milk because could you feed a dog? Could you keep it alive by feeding it directly? Can you guess what happened? I don't know if I want to know. Well, what happens when you mix blood and milk is that it curdles. So that dog would have had a horrific death. Um, but then lower thought, what if you inject some blood? Because blood has already assimilated the food. So you might be able to keep an animal alive by injecting blood. So that was the sort of link to, to transfusion, to blood transfusion. Um, now, when so that's that's one side, this sort of mechanical sort of contrivance, this mechanical conception of the body and how you connect to bodies. But people in this era don't really yet know very much about what the blood is, what's inside the blood. So they're relying on um, a mixture of ancient medicine, of folk belief, of religion, and they, <coughs> excuse me, and they tend to think that inside of a blood there is some kind of soul or some kind of humoral um, mixture, some kind of uh, bit of your personality even. So they would go to myths and legends like, uh, you know, Ovid, they'd go to Ovid's stories and think of things like uh, Jason and the Argonauts, the story of Medea. Um, part of that story at the end involves um, Jason, he's, he's earned the Golden Fleece and he's on his way back and he's claimed Medea, who was the king's daughter. So he's on his way back home. And when he arrives there, all of his men's families are there celebrating and his own father is the only one who, who didn't who didn't come out because he's too old. So what Medea does at uh, Jason's request is she arranges for um, a, a, a potion to be made. Well, she makes the potion herself, a magical potion, and rejuvenates his blood with it. So she slits his throat, re mixes this potion with his blood, and then puts it back into his veins. In some versions, he drinks it. Um, and the people who, the, the scientists in the, in the 17th century who thought about blood transfusion, um, thought about this as a kind of inspiration. Maybe if you transfuse the blood of a young animal, you can make an old animal younger. You can transfer that youth. Maybe if you transfuse the blood of a young animal into a human, you could make that human younger. But let's take it further. <laughs> Maybe if you transfuse the blood of a lamb, which is, of course, the lamb of God, it's innocent, it's uh, pure. If you transfuse that into an insane person, it would make them sane again. And you know what? It looked like it worked. Because you can take, your body can take a little bit of blood from, well, an incompatible source. I wouldn't recommend trying it, but it can take a tiny bit of blood from an incompatible source. And you would be very ill. You would be incredibly ill. You would vomit, you, would, you wouldn't have a very good time, and you'd be too tired to act insane. So they're interpreting this as it's- As a cure. Working. Mm. 
of course you'd recover eventually and then you'd need another another top up um and eventually it would end in in your agonizing death <laughs> agonized death um but yes i suppose when you asked about um when transplant goes internal i suppose you can't get much more internal than transplanting a soul or transplanting a bit of your personality hey guys I want to say thank you for being a listener of this podcast. I hope you're enjoying it and that you're learning a lot. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a way that you can support the podcast through the show's Patreon. Over at patreon.com, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. You can contribute whatever you feel the show is worth. And supporters get some extra perks, such as bonus Q&A episodes with some of my guests, uh, the opportunities to submit listener questions, and then supporters get early access to all episodes uh, about a week before anybody else. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cmtu history. One way you can support the podcast that is absolutely free is you can like the show on whatever app you like to listen to podcasts on, uh, write a little review. Those things are immensely helpful in getting the show some exposure to new listeners. Uh, you can also follow the show on social media. I am on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All of them are at CMTU History. And one new development with the podcast is that the show is now on YouTube. I know that some people like to listen to podcasts on YouTube. Maybe they have it up uh, in the background while they're at work at their desk. Uh, so I'm working on making that available. I have a YouTube channel, CMTU History. Look for Can't Make This Up. And then I'm working on getting the back catalog of episodes up on there. Please bear with me. It's a, a bit of a slow process, but I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, and then, of course, please subscribe to the show on YouTube. That's something I'm trying to really build up uh, as kind of the next phase of the podcast. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Now back to our interview. Now, looking at the world in which these experiments in Europe are being conducted, I mean, it's, it's Christendom. It's, you know, highly religious. How, how do the religious authorities of the day interpret this type of... Um, meddling mm, mm. well it depended on the authorities in france in catholic france it was an abomination because of course you are meddling with the soul you're in fact you're you're making something mechanical that wasn't meant to be mechanical you're you're saying you can split the soul and move it somewhere else and so many um doctors physicians um so many uh, early or proto-scientists you might say um wrote um against blood transfusion the in in france the you know the chief scientists of the um, academy of sciences there they were completely against blood transfusion um in fact <laughs> the person they got to to um to investigate it 
uh, was called Claude Perrault. Now, my French is is appalling. I'm, so I apologize to anybody who can speak French. Uh, Claude Perrault. Um, and he he actually, if you've heard his name, you might have heard it as an architect of part of the Louvre, the gallery. Uh, well, gallery now, isn't it? Um, but he was also, uh, he was interested in medicine to begin with. And his brother had what historians think was typhoid fever. And he, he, he you know, <laughs> he thought being a traditional doctor, he thought that um, this was caused by him sleeping on a bed um, where his bed sheets had been dried too close to a rose bush. Because that would cool down, uh, it would it would have some kind of humoral effect, and it would it would change the um, composition of his humours. It would cool him down or heat him up, or so I, I'm not quite sure how it worked in his mind. But he, he he tried to treat it by putting a pigeon on top of his head, a gutted um, pigeon on top of his head. And so the audience knows what we're talking about: this humours mm. idea. Um, could you, you know, this idea of good humours and bad humours, what we're talking about? Um, well, humoralism is uh, an ancient way of conceiving body in sickness and health. So your body is composed of four humours. You have blood, black bile, yellow bile and phlegm. And now if those are, if there is a, a, a balance between those four humours, you are considered to be healthy. If there's an imbalance in any one particular way, there are many different diseases or or um, upsets <laughs> that you might have. Um, there, those humours are, for the most part, invisible. So there isn't. It's not an empirical kind of medicine. Um, it relied a lot on the stars as well, and you know, deducing what a person's um, state of health would be. So so the person who the French authorities got to investigate blood transfusion was a committed humoralist. He had been trained in very traditional ways um, of medicine. So they already had pre-decided pretty much that it wouldn't work and it was a terrible, terrible um, thing to do. It was against the church as well. Uh, in Britain, in Protestant Britain, it was a very, very different story. Plays were written about how ridiculous and hilarious this was to think of a, a, a scientist trying to um, make a uh, to try to change someone's makeup by transfusing the blood of an animal. So you had plays making fun of this. Oh, if you transfuse a, a mountain goat's blood into me, I can go and finish my collection of of bird eggs. I can go up the mountains. I can turn into a goat, you know, all so, kinds of... So if I wanted to, I, I could get uh, bear strength or something like that. If I... Exactly. You're, you're catching on and you're already, you're already coming up with your own possibilities. I like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, scientists in the period were not respected figures. They are now. Well, that's actually debatable now, but um, they, they certainly were not then. So trans trans blood transfusion was in a similar category to things like 
weighing air, which is something scientists at that time were, were seemed to be obsessed with. And it was it was a, a, a point that the public just Protestant public in Britain found hilarious. They just couldn't get enough of making fun of scientists. And so many plays were written about about how science was ridiculous and transfusion, you know, that 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 was one of those ridiculous um, procedures, experiments that they made fun of. Um, otherwise, there's very little actually in the way of surprisingly little in the way of of overt religious um, uh, uh, condemnation of blood transfusion. You have the Catholic, we just discussed the Catholic um, response in France, uh, one of fear, because you are, you're splitting souls, but um, surprisingly little, actually. And what about, um, I guess, philosophers who, you know, they spend a lot of work, you know, there's been a lot written about the self and the psyche and who am I? Mm. Uh, have they had anything to say about this? About transplantation in general? Absolutely. Um, I suppose this moves our conversation slightly on to tooth transplants, but it would be good to sort of, excuse me, it would be good to introduce the great shift that took place in the 18th century and how um, we had a very different idea of what a very different idea of what identity is or could be emerged in that period. So the 18th century is really the birth of the modern world. Mm -hmm. You had high streets appearing, you had fashion becoming a thing, you had uh, Christmas trees um, being, um, you know, proliferating at Christmas time in non-German households. Uh, you had coffee shops, you had a new idea about identity. Um, in the period we've just been talking about, in the 17th century and before, you had these notions of souls or these notions of some kind of animating principle. Um, you were pretty much inside of your body. You inhabited a body. Which is why blood transfusion is so troubling for Catholics, uh, particularly, or was that <laughs> the kind of transfusion which we've just been talking about uh, was was troubling for Catholics, um, and that's because you disturb that soul. Once you get to the eighteenth century, you have different ways of thinking about identity emerging. So instead of thinking about the self as something that inhabits the body. Now you think about, or some philosophers started to suggest you might think about yourself as a composition. So instead of being a thing that inhabits, you are your body and that's all that you are. So you are the result of the things that you buy, the things that you own, the things that people associate with you, the things that are done to you, the things that... Um, you identify with so so historians of medicine call it individuations basically it's the more or less modern idea that you are an individual mm -hmm. so that comes um into into place in the 18th century 
and it's not immediate of course but you have that very very definite um, shift from one way of looking at um, the self in relation to the body to this more modern sense and that brings with it new kinds of transplant so we just talked about fashion well I've just mentioned fashion um, and the high street and and this consumer revolution this industrial revolution that created new ways of being concerned over your appearance for instance because if you were going to get ahead in this new society and sort of de defeat as it were that that widening class divide maybe get on in life you wanted to present yourself well so dentistry appeared um, in the early 18th century 1728 the word dentiste Again, that's my terrible French. Um, that was coined by Pierre Fauchard. And his approach to dealing with the teeth was, or to treating the teeth was, was a new one based on science, based on, um, uh, based not on the removal, uh, not necessarily just on the removal of a troublesome tooth, uh, but on treating uh, troublesome teeth, filling the teeth because it was was one of his item one of the items on his menus filing them washing your mouth out with urine to clean them that's something that we don't tend to do very much nowadays no, um no no i'm glad you said that <laughs> uh, <laughs> glad we we can we can confirm that um and transplanting teeth as well didn't really take off that much in the early part of the century later in the century when those forces of capitalism and social inequality became supercharged um you have a lot of satire about tooth transplants because the uh, writing uh, cartoons things like that because the the donors that's a very euphemistic way of using the term donor by the way the donors were little children Okay, for children. Poor children. Some of the early writers, uh, some a, a dentist in Yorkshire called Charles Allen, in the, at the end of the seventeenth century, said that you could, you could, it, it, that would be barbaric to take human teeth. Um, better to use a, a sheep or a gorilla. I don't know where you get a gorilla in eight in seventeenth century Yorkshire, but um, it was obviously a more diverse <laughs> place than it is now. <laughs> um, yes, but once you get to the 18th century you have you have that widening class system and you have rich people wanting to get ahead wanting to have beautiful mouths but rotting their teeth of course with the sugar and sweetmeats that they can now buy mm -hmm. um so money can solve everything let's just buy the tooth of that little girl whose whose family is starving mm. they'll appreciate the two guineas or whatever it would be um so that that's particularly barbaric and it was it was it well i don't think it was actually outlawed you know tooth transplantation it's it fizzled out start of the 19th century the last reference i'd ever seen to a tooth transplant being formed was in buffalo new york and it was 1837 but that was very much a, an outlier it, by the year 1800 it pretty much stopped uh, as, a, as a practice but i have seen it in a dentistry textbook from 1919. okay so as late as that they're at least no. referencing it 
Now, mm. now can I assume once we begin to develop synthetic uh, alternatives for replacement teeth, that that's when this tends to fall out of favor? Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Um, that and some of the wealthy recipients started to get syphilis and other infections and they started to become ill and some die, some high profile deaths. Mm -hmm. um, it just It's just generally safer to get a porcelain set of teeth. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and just the, um, uh, I don't know, knowledge of where your new tooth has come from. You know, I would much rather mm. have a fake tooth than knowing that it was someone else's tooth. That says you're a good guy. <laughs> uh well paul uh uh your book is gross a little bit icky but it is <laughs> gee thanks <laughs> no this is um a fascinating part of history that i always enjoy uh diving into i guess that makes me a little bit weird but the, uh, the three the history of how we came to have modern medicine is so fascinating. It is. I've got to say, though, it's it's only it's not gross gratuitously. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross to bring those things to life. A writer has a responsibility not to write dryly, I think. Yes. And I, I don't I actually I don't I, I'm not particularly interested in gross things or grossing people out. Right. Well, well, Paul, uh, I, I've loved this discussion and I've loved hearing about your research. Uh, if someone is interested in science and medicine and history, uh, where can they go to pick up a copy of your book or to learn more about you and your other research? Oh, thanks, Kevin. It's, it's been wonderful to be a guest as well. Thanks for having me. Um, to get a copy of a book, it should be available wherever people get their books, usually. Um, and I have a website, which is www.paulcraddock.com, which is mostly about the book at the moment, uh, but I shall be further populating it uh, shortly. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you liked my conversation with Paul Craddock. Uh, definitely a very interesting topic to get into. Uh, Chit-chatted with Paul a little bit before and after the show, and, and just a really nice guy, really cool to talk to. Uh, so if you want to learn more uh, about the history of transplants, uh, his book, again, is Spare Parts, The Story of Medicine Through the History of Transplant Surgery. And I've included a link to the book uh, down in the description of this episode in your podcast app, so you can check that out. And I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Uh, it'll probably be sometime in June, and we'll be talking with Dean Job. He's been on the podcast before. He's a true crime author. Um, he's going to talk to us about a Victorian serial killer, the murderous Dr. Cream. Uh, so can't wait to get into that with Dean. Uh, in the meantime, you guys can check out uh, his past couple episodes on the podcast. Uh, until then, uh, have a great start to your summer. <laughs>